Hello, Sopranos podcast fans. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to our episode this week. Thank you for waiting an extra week because of the 4th of July holiday. I know some of you were a little disappointed we didn't drop an episode last week, but hey, it's a holiday, baby. What do you want from me? This show is made in America, like The Sopranos was. Apologies to our friends across the pond. I did want to come on real quick, though, before our normal episode breakdown and just talk for a minute because we found out earlier this week that a legend, a person we all as Sopranos fans love, an iconic television personality, Tony Sirico, who played Paulie Walnuts on the show, did pass away this week. What a life he lived. And I do want to invite Paul and Jordan to have a discussion about Tony Sirico at some point in our podcast. We're going to talk about the work he's done on this show, how crucial he's been to The Sopranos. But I did just want to acknowledge it quickly now and just say that there's no replicating Paul E. Walnuts. There's no replicating the work Tony Sirico did, both in and outside of this show, by the way. He's one of these people you encounter in life or see in life and just think, my goodness, there will never be another person like that. Absolutely irreplaceable human being, a true character, a true personality, one of a kind. I know that's something of a cliche to say about somebody after they've died, but I don't know that I've ever meant it more when I talk about a public figure who's passed on than I mean it when I say Tony Sirico, completely irreplaceable, irreplicable human being. So Tony, condolences to your family, your friends, and all of the fans who are mourning your loss. Your work in our show that we love so much, The Sopranos, is so close to all of our hearts. We'll never be able to see anybody with wings in their hair and not think of you. And all your little tics, your <laughs> and your hypochondria and all your funny Polly quirks and all the dangerous and crazy things Polly Walnuts did over the course of the show. Uh, the show would just not have been the same without him. So Tony, wherever you are, my friend, thank you. Thank you. And if you happen to be in purgatory, I know you could do that standing on your head 3,000 years or so. It's like a couple of days here. <laughs> Rest in peace, Tony. Seriously, though, thank you for the contribution you made to the show. And to all of the Sopranos fans out there listening, we're going to miss him tremendously. So we're going to talk more about it at some point. Just wanted to mention it. Thank you all so much and enjoy the Sopranos podcast. Doesn't seem possible, but we are almost halfway through season four. This is the Sopranos podcast, season four, episode six, Good Intentions. Anthony, which do you want to see? That's a quote from Gloria in an incredible dream sequence from the episode Everybody Hurts in season four of The Sopranos, written by Michael Imperioli and directed by Steve Buscemi. Interesting combination. Everybody Hurts. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we are here again. Season four is cruising along. It's going by faster. It feels like it's going by faster than previous seasons. And I'm not sure if that's because, as we discussed, the format feels a little bit more serialized. But for some reason, I can't believe we're already at episode six. 
and it's moving along here. Michael Imperioli getting another uh, another crack in the writer's chair. I definitely think this is a vastly better outing than his previous episode, Christopher. But uh, yeah, I'll say. <laughs> but a lot of interesting stuff here going on. Great AJ storyline. Uh, Tony finding out about Gloria, Artie Bucco, great Bucco stuff this episode. We're going to get all into it. What are your initial thoughts on Everybody Hurts? Yeah, so I have to say uh, I loved this episode, um, mm. and I'm not – well, I was about to say I'm not usually so taken by a midseason episode, but that's a, that's a complete lie. I think I've been blown away every midseason. It's just a testament to how good this show is. For a midseason episode, this is riotously good. It would be good anywhere. Mm. Uh, I'll say this. I am so pleased with this show's ability to surprise me without using any manipulation. Mm. Like it's really, really just all in the world of the show. I had never considered as a viewer of this show, uh, you know, even though I'm not like a master of the show, like like the two of you are, I, I had never considered that Tony thought of himself as a good person. Mm. I had never considered that. That blows me away because you're thinking like we're all in this together. The viewers, the actors, the characters, <laughs> right? We all agree like, oh, Tony Soprano, he's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. He's a he's a murderer. He's a, a womanizer. He's, you know, he's involved in organized crime. He, you know, defrauds, you know, uh, you know, organizations. Like, this is a, a bad dude. But confronted <laughs> with, you know, I don't know, the the idea that he's responsible for Gloria's suicide uh, and that he might, in fact, be a bad person. And, and to watch him try to overcorrect that, you're like, why is he doing this? Doesn't he know he's, he's Tony Soprano? And then you're like, oh, fuck, Tony thinks he's the good guy. Tony <laughs> thinks he's a good person. Oh, my God. And, yeah. and, and watching him try to adhere to that and, of course, creating worse situations for everyone. Amazing television. Yeah. Extremely well said, Paul. Wholeheartedly agree. Uh, this is not an episode that I liked when I first watched it. Some years ago, I'm sure I remember seeing it as depressing, <laughs> which, which which it is, by the way. Yeah, um, yeah. There's, there's I don't, yeah, I don't think of, you were wrong about that, Paul. Right, right. The, um, a lot of this stuff is a bummer, but of course, it's also fucking hilarious. Um, the, these bleakly funny moments, I still laugh when Artie calls Tony. <laughs> John Ventimiglia has an ability as an actor to make me feel for the character it's not that I don't get or care about what the character's going through I do but he is still super funny even in these bleakly dark moments uh, brought about by as Jordan pointed out Tony's good intentions Tony's generosity I think in many ways this episode is about sight it's about what we see and what we want to see and what vision we want to create. And the point at which that aesthetic smacks up against the actual questions of responsibility and what it means to, to actually take care and to care about somebody else. Um, th these problems are gonna come up for Tony where he actually needs to take a certain action and he's not gonna go there. Um, as Jordan pointed out, he wants to cultivate this image of the good person. So I think that what this all brings out is an episode that, as Jordan said, is very surprising, but it's not manipulative. It really isn't. It, it, I buy it top to bottom. 
Um, another thing that I love about it is, of course, John Ventimiglia's turn as Artie Bucco here. He does particularly great work. I love all the stuff with AJ. Um, his storyline's really funny and playful. And all these are swirling around the image that one wants to project either of Tony, which becomes by extension, the image of A, and Artie's own image, what he wants to project out into the world. So all of it added up to a terrific hour. Um, I'm really glad of it. Another thing that I was mad about when I watched the episode, of course, was that Gloria had left us, um, mm. and I wanted her to come back because she was such an interesting character. But of course, it fits. We know that this was likely where the character was headed. It's a sad truth, but I think it's true. Yeah, I agree with everything you guys just said, and I feel very much the same. This is a surprising but fun episode. It's sad, while also dark. The Sopranos masters the sad with the darkly comic very well. Watching Tony essentially just flailing his arms and metaphorically to keep afloat in this image he has of himself that that wait a minute, like he asks several times throughout the episode, what the fuck am I, a toxic person? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, Tony. <laughs> you, well, you, I just, the script is so good. It's yeah. a it's a really well-written episode. Uh, props to Michael Imperioli, a total redemption if anyone had any flimsy feelings on Christopher. Um, <laughs> just, I had never, really, I'm being so serious. I've, I've been taking this show so seriously and I'm being dead serious when I say this. I had never really considered that Tony thought of himself as a good person. I knew he was a, a man of a certain kind of honor. He had a certain code about him, considered himself a captain of industry type. I knew he was always going to try to be good to his family, good to his guys. But I never really thought that, oh, Tony thinks he's a great person. <laughs> I, I never thought that that would be something that would be like, it would concern him if that was at risk. I thought he had kind of made his peace with just like, yeah, I mean, I, I kill people for money and, you know, I'm, I'm an organized crime boss. I guess I'm not a great dude, but he really cares about being a great dude. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he is able to, at a certain point, tuck that all aside and, and do what needs to be done. But it, it, this this question, I think the most fascinating aspect of this episode and in the series in general with this episode in context is how much of what Tony does is just a part of his instinct. Artie makes a very compelling accusation later on in the episode when they have their scene in the hospital. Well, yeah, we'll where, talk about that scene, but he's uh, Artie's right. <laughs> yes, that he's just naturally a hawk, and and yeah, what a what a great what a great thing. But let's start from the top here. You have to feel a certain sense of doom and pity when you see how the first few beats of this episode play out. This is the future of the family sitting here stoned out of his skull with adriana the dog is eating a slice of pizza it's just being barely dangled <laughs> and then chris just shot up and he gets a call from tony i need you meet me in 20 minutes has to slap himself awake and we're also cutting in on aj as this is happening with his new girlfriend devon this is the first time we're meeting devon very yeah, cute i can't I'm sorry to interject. Well, I can't let it slide. What they're watching on television is they're they're watching a some kind of a docu series on how the pyramids of Egypt were built. Just mm. it's good to note for later. Yes, they're watching this Egypt documentary, and we cut to and AJ. Then Devin, Devin Pillsbury. Enter Devin Pillsbury. Yes, Devin Pillsbury. 
she's she's a pretty blonde girl and it's one of those situations where it's you know maybe con- considering where aj came from this kind of chubby not very particularly special or adept kid there's the sense that's like oh aj did well for himself here she seems smart it's not like she's not like a ditzy blonde right like not that type she's uh, worse than that yeah well we'll get there but <laughs> <laughs> but yes yeah, so Devin, and then uh his other friend paul dano paul dano in his infancy uh <laughs> this the is the riddler himself <laughs> paul dano is an excellent actor uh and it's it's uh, we talked about this when we saw lady gaga in season three that there are a couple instances in the show where people who went on to become really big sure have smaller roles in this he has yeah, yeah he has a couple lines and things he's later great. on the episode but he's he's really good in this role yeah actually yeah, a he plays character. He plays an awesome shitty kid, as most yeah. of these kids are are shitty. Mm. And these scenes are great. I love the setup. Uh, Chris, you mentioned the question of AJ's specialness. In this scene, we know precisely what makes AJ special. His dad's a gangster. That's and it. by extension, he is the cool kid. And uh, we're already talking about Tony's image and cultivating it. It's not garbage. It's recycling. It's yes. not toxic. We're cleaning up. Mm. that's the image that we got to put out there uh so that's the way that it's set up it's it's very well done these kids are really funny um the next scene absolutely destroys me we'll get there when they go to satrials but yeah (laughs) yeah so they get this idea this is once again and and in a sense while i'm sure there's a part of aj that enjoys it on a surface level there's also there has to be, you know what it harkened back to for me, this bit, the scene with the kids and in general, the way a lot of the other kids are interacting with AJ, it felt like the stock market dudes in a hit is a hit in season one, the, bung- just, the bungalow bar truck. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Just, I don't know. Are any of these people going to be AJ's friend 20 years from now? I doubt it. I think they, they get a kick out of who his dad is and sure. uh, it, it, it's fodder for entertainment and like, Ooh, this is a gangster guy's son. Actually, Chris, I think it's pretty telling that we've actually never seen any of these kids before, as far yeah. as I can tell. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't think these are, I don't think the show, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think the show has established a regular crew of kids for AJ that is recognizable to the viewer. I don't think any of these young men or women we've seen before, mm. and especially the Paul Dano character, I'm like, you're brand new. Is that right? Yeah, no, we've never seen him. We've never seen any of these kids. There are once in a while recurring. I think Jeremy Piacosta, who he almost fights early in season one, pops up here and there. But right. uh, more again, still more on the periphery. Now, he doesn't have a yeah. regular crew. AJ, of right? AJ did change schools, so perhaps that these kids true. are from the new school. Maybe that's the the rationale here. Mm. The episode where AJ almost fought Piacosta was Meadowlands right. in season one. This set of revelations in this episode is like a funhouse mirror of the Meadowlands reveal. Yeah, this is AJ realizing that his dad is Penny Ant. So that's the that's the fun setup here. Just as Tony is trying to cultivate, I'm a good person, and put that image out there. These kids are trying to cultivate badassery, <laughs> um, and it's it, it's funny. It's weird. Mm-hmm. They decide to go to the strip club, something I'm sure the girls here are just thrilled with. And uh, <laughs> they seem kind of into it, to be honest with you. <laughs> 
And then we get to this meeting with Chris and Tony. Chris is kind of slapping himself awake. There's a very curious shot. I love when you have moments like this where you have really smart characters like Furio who are largely silent. Furio is not a character who is dripping with dialogue at any given time. Strong, silent type. And uh, I love the little shot they give of Furio just kind of narrowing his eyes watching Chris. Like Furio's like, ooh, he's fucked up. Uh, Furio picks up on it. And Tony gets out there and has a meeting with Chris. And, you know, hey, you mentioned Paul Dano is the Riddler. Let's quote enough from another Batman movie. Let's talk about the future. <laughs> uh, <Hey>, Eckhart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a conversation. They both have something to say to each other. Starts out as this check-in about some appliance thing at Port Elizabeth. That's the surface excuse, I'm sure, whatever. You been drinking? Aiden and I had some wine at the house. Yeah, some wine. And (laughs) they both have something to tell each other. And Tony says, well, I'll go first. As time goes on, I need to insulate myself. Eventually, I'm going to be giving my orders more through you and then only through you. It's a matter of trust. Tony, uh, Christopher mentions, well, you got Paul and Silvio. Tony says one thing they're not, they're not my blood. And Tony expresses very clearly, you're going to lead this family into the 21st century. Well, we're already in the 21st century, T. (laughs) Good job, Chris. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then his revelation is, I'd follow you into the gates of hell. And he very well may, by the way. Mm -hmm. And he expresses that whatever, whether it was a, what I love is the mystery, right? We don't know for sure if this Barry Haydu cop that was executed in episode one killed Dickie or not. We know very little surrounding it, but it seems to have worked as far as Tony's intended purpose, which was ingratiating Chris to him. So thoughts on this whole meeting and Tony's plan to pass the family on to his wonderful nephew i think i think one would question the sincerity here of this well there's a couple things i don't really know why the meeting's taking place i guess it's to hash out the appliance thing though that does seem secondary ultimately when you consider what's more important for the sake of the narrative it it does seem to be that the more important thing in the scene is that tony envisions a future where chris will seemingly become a more traditional underboss for the family and then maybe go on to perhaps become the boss of the family. But I don't know if Tony really wants that or if he, or, or if this is like the the hey do thing where it's like, uh, hey, I, I got you the guy that killed your father so you can kill him. I don't I don't know. Uh, Tony certainly wants to keep Chris as close as possible. So I don't know if he's telling him this with the good intentions of you know, laying out a future for him as the head of the family or with selfish intentions of just being like, I need to keep an eye on you at all fucking times because uh, I suspect you are a liability. I don't I don't know. <laughs> uh, great questions. I think it might be a bit of both, just as uh, Tony's generosity with other characters in the episode is ultimately self-serving. Um, it, the purchasing of goodwill. In this case... I think he does want to keep Chris close. I think that Tony does and uh, is trying to create a new vision for himself. Tony's final form as a gangster, as he sees it, I think is almost a kind of astral presence where he's not really there. He's only giving orders through Chris. 
he doesn't want to really cultivate an image at all, then the way it switches after he finds out about Gloria is that what he wants to cultivate in his everyday life is this good guy, as Jordan's been saying. So I think that there's a, there's a fun irony there. I think Tony is either in some kind of denial. He doesn't want to see it. It only took Furio a second mm. to see something's going on. Um, so there's yeah. what we want to see and what we don't want to see. And I don't know, maybe Tony just doesn't, he's not ready to see this yet. Um, yeah. Not to mention that what Chris and Adriana are doing, according to one theory of the case, is treating sadness and depression, which Tony will end up doing. He's going to end up mixing Amagnac with a handful of fucking Prozac in about 20 minutes. Position <laughs> is he in to see everybody else's difficulties. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good good point. It, it, it serves this idea that Tony can attempt to be magnanimous. There's a surface level idea of like, oh, look, I'm a good person. I'm helping my nephew. I'm helping him find closure on the unfortunate murder of his father. I'm setting up my nephew to one day take over this family. But at the same time, buried beneath that, whether Tony's conscious of it or not is irrelevant. Buried beneath that is the fact that this is ultimately still a self-serving act. He is he has gained Chris's loyalty. He has for better or worse, and whether or not that is going to last given Christopher's condition is another question. But yeah, it is uh we're already toying with this idea of image. Absolutely. Moving along here, we get this hilarious scene where they're out searching among Tony's properties. AJ must have <laughs> had a general sense of direction, and uh, they pull up outside Satriali's. <laughs> it's a pork uh, oh the pork store aj says to which one of his friends replies it's a gay strip club <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines yeah good bit good yeah bit. <laughs> why wasn't that the poll quote this week come on <laughs> good question who co- who the fuck comes up with these quotes <laughs> oh wait <laughs> so yeah it's like jenko olive oil from the godfather it always comes back to these movies. I think in college, Meadow and Tony, when they have their conversation, when she asks about him being in the mafia, Tony asks her or the question of what Meadow's friends think come up. And she's like, yeah, they like casino. <laughs> the, the cars are closed. But again, this image of mob culture is what's coming up. So they're able to compare it to Janko. I just saw The Godfather again on the big screen for the 50th anniversary. It was quite an experience. And hmm. uh, just wanted to mention that it's still a masterpiece. What a good movie. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, no arguments. <laughs> yep. So, Chris, you'll have to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point, I think they're taught like maybe AJ got the directions to the Bada Bing and the other hangout Satrials mixed up. And he says, Bada Bing is in Lodi or something. Lodi is not like, say, super far from North Caldwell where AJ hangs out, but it might as well be a million miles away, right? Mm. It's like a different world. And it kind of underlines to me that AJ only very slightly knows his dad's world. Yeah. Right? This isn't something he's intimate with. Geographically, it's a 15-minute drive. But again, like you said, Paul, because of the the way New Jersey is laid out, and I think a lot of places are laid out this way, but it's very interesting. You plop yourself in the middle of Lodi, and there's nothing wrong with Lodi. It's a There's some nice parts of Lodi, some houses and communities and businesses it's a cool little spot there's a lot there 
But you put somebody just in a vacuum, you drop them in the middle of Lodi, have them look around for 15 minutes, and then drop them in the middle of North Caldwell, they'd think they were in different parts of the country. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's two totally different areas in that sense. But geographically, yeah, you're right, Paul. It's like a 15-minute drive down Route 17, and you're there. So, And Kearney, by the way, is uh, another community that's different, unique. It feels a little kind of lost in time. It's a cool place, but it's also, again, bordering Newark. Uh, we'll be exploring Newark in um, an upcoming episode here. But it's so, yeah, all of these places are in the orbit, but very different from each other. Furio and Carm, yikes. Uh, Furio's in the house with Tony after they come back. Your son's out past curfew again. Oh, hi. Boop. Robe, cover up. She didn't expect to be seen in this condition. We're used, <laughs> we're, we're used to seeing Carmela primp and prepare. But he's going to go wait in the car or use the bay, came in to use the bathroom. And uh, the next scene in the bedroom, Carmela is worried about Furio. She wants to try to set him up with this uh, hygienist. <laughs> Tony poo-poos it, not really reading into it, just thinking like, eh, he's good. Don't, please, don't worry about him. He's yeah, though, not his type. Yeah, Tony objects and says, oh, I don't think she's his type or whatever. And Carmela's response is, oh, what, what is his type? Mm. You know, just kind of searching for like, would he, you know, subtextually, would he like me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't get that. We don't get that far in this scene because this scene's about to get a wrecking ball through it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Tony tells Tony tells Carmela, stay out of it. Yeah. Uh, my little hello, Dolly. Presumably he doesn't. <laughs> matchmaker. Yeah. 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 Presumably he doesn't want these different worlds colliding. Then Carmela tells him about Gloria. So good luck with that. Mm -hmm. And I love the way this is staged. Tony happened to be turned the other way when she drops the news. You remember that woman at Globe Motors? Tony gives the correct answer. Uh, <laughs> no, turns over because, you know, given their situation, had Tony remembered a beautiful woman that he just had a passing interaction with. That would be uh, that would raise Carm's yes. radar. But uh, you remember, she gave me a ride home, whatever. Okay. And she drops this bomb on him and he committed suicide. And to Carmela, it, it comes off as this sort of, oh, one of these sad local gossip things, you know, that you hear about, but you're not, you're not going to be wrecked over it. It's just one of those, like, oh, that's terrible. Right. And Tony is gutted. You can see it. He's just, he's, he's rocked. Yeah. They, they get that shot of his face while Carmel's just applying lotion to her hands. And he's just like, what the fuck? Really? And I love the line. She gives Mr. Empathy over here. She thinks he's just <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give a fuck. Yeah. And he is just gutted. He's ripped from the inside out. It's a very funny bit of business, despite the gravity of what has just happened. So yeah, we're going to take the, we're going to get a new element of this episode's story in a second, but any, uh, any, any, how did you feel when this news was dropped and what do you think of Gloria's unfortunate end in the show? I don't, I don't think I have a really good deep interpretation of this short scene where he learns the news other than what's already been stated. I'll just say that um, as a viewer, it's just a, a really unfortunate, but also very expected coda mm -hmm. on the whole Gloria Trillo story. Uh, kind of like she was always going to maybe end up this way, maybe yeah. not this soon. And of course, you can see it before it even happens that Tony is going to feel like this is all on him. And of course, it is in part on him, but it's it's not all. We will not get the the real uh, the real 
story on this until we get to the Melfi scene, of course. But, um, you know, it's 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 that simultaneously weird emotional moment of like, oh, my God, no. But also, oh, of course, you know. Yeah, it's what I what I will say about this is it, it, we're going to find out how this affects Tony in, in a larger sense shortly. But what I love about this from a narrative point of view is that The Sopranos has established at this point, and in keeping with the tradition of always managing to surprise you, when Sopranos drops a storyline, they may or may not ever pick it back up. We're midway through season four. We have no follow-up on the Russian from Pine Barrens. So the show trains you to think, well, Gloria's gone. We're in a new season. That's over. That's last season. So they could have just not addressed it. She could have just been gone. And sure. They, and, they yeah. lull you with the same false sense of security that Tony had allowed himself to have, right? Exactly. Actually, we get the same experience as Tony, where he's like, well, that chapter of my life is over and I've moved on. Uh, oh, but that's not how life works. Yes. Yes. Some things are gone. Some things are buried in the woods and some things are not. And this is one of those things that's going to come drudging right back up. So we're going to meet some new people in Artie's orbit in a moment. This is uh, he has his new host, his French hostess, LOD. And I'm not sure how this guy's Artie's got a fucking problem. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, dude? Hire a male hostess. Okay. (laughs) Hire an unattractive hostess. Stop doing this to yourself. What the fuck, man? (laughs) He's very clearly enamored with her. I'm not quite sure. It wasn't clear to me what her relationship to Jean-Philippe, if this is a friend, a business associate, a lover. Oh, wasn't that? I thought that was like a relative of hers. A relative. Yeah, maybe I missed it. Her it. Brother? Do you know, Paul? Is it a brother? Well, yeah. I mean, it's that's what they told him. Oh, okay. and, that's uh, also true. It could, they, yeah, they they might, were probably targeting him. I mean, in in a later beat, again, if if we're right that this episode is in part about sight and what we see and what we don't want to see, in a later beat, it's suggestive that Charmaine knows full well that Artie is being strung along here by by this cute little lady and her uh, her brother or whoever this guy is and Artie again can't see it mm. you think she wants to play hide the boudin blank with you uh <laughs> you know all that stuff so i mean i i don't know but here it's uh this is her brother they have this business venture um by the way the way that Artie again is trying to project cultivate a new image of himself this deal is not just financial for him this is self-actualization the way that he is doing it is so not powerful. It's so not intimidating. It see, it feels like what it would be like if I tried to be gangster and you guys would have to tell me, Paul, you can't, you have to stop this. This isn't, this isn't working. <laughs> right. Be like, oh, I can only give you seven and a half, like with my hands cupped to my mouth. It's like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not, that's not scaring not anybody, you know? <laughs> Artie, I wrote here simply after they negotiated the deal and how fast it happened that Artie's essentially going to go to Tony, act as a middleman or or go to the mob. We'll get to Ralphie in a second, Uh, but he's going to go to the mob to speak, speak for this guy or act as the middleman, cut himself in, get a little something out of it. And I wrote, this is why Artie needs Charmaine for all of her abrasiveness and for all of the uh, fact that Artie feels castrated in a sense with the way she deals with him 
this is why she needs him because this is why he needs her because he got right. He, he was pulled right into this. There was no, ah, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. I was like, Oh no, I'm going to get something out of this for myself. He's got his midlife crisis earring in. He's not in a good place with Charmaine. Artie was in exactly the right mental space to be cap caught up in this nonsense. Right. So he wants to, but the long and short of it is he needs to bridge loan this guy $50,000 as an investment in this Armagnac company. And that's it. He's right in for a 7.5,000. He, he, he negotiates for himself. Charmaine comes out, has an interaction. I like this line. Charmaine, she's French. Already says not remotely. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, it's such an important point that you bring up with Charmaine when they they then argue in the back for a minute, and I think he says, I could have an empire like Bobby Flay and it wouldn't be good enough. And she's talking about their kid needs braces, that they got these real world problems. And again, it seems like this self-actualization, Artie wanting to prove to Charmaine that he doesn't need her counsel. But as you pointed out, plainly, he does. Yeah, that reminder that, hey, by the way, like, even if he got the full 10 he asked for, that's the orthodontics bill right there. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. then you can start working on your empire. So Artie is, uh, you know, he's losing the plot here. I'll say that. He, he, he seems to be so unsatisfied with his life. Yes. And I, I, I don't disagree that he, he has uh, a life that has not worked out for him, but also like, the show very deliberately doesn't make him a complete failure. Yes, he's he's buffoonish and um, he's worthy of ridicule and he's pitiful in many ways, especially, of course, in this episode. But uh, we're led to believe he's very good at his job. Like he's he's an extraordinary chef and he has a wonderful restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a shame that he can't find happiness in in the life that he already has. And yes. this is something Charmaine suggested to him uh, previously. And I think that small uh, what i'm trying to say is i I think Artie's relationship with his own life is kind of a microcosm for like everything that goes on in this show that none of these characters can just find satisfaction in what they have that they they always are wanting more or want to be seen differently and and charmaine as as unlikable as she is because she's a hard character to like is one of those characters that really sees things the way that they are you know and and really understands that that is a problem Yes, I agree. Uh, there was a, um, in a sense, an ancillary sibling show to this that came on a few years later, Boardwalk Empire, which is where yeah. I first heard the quote I'm about to drop. But it seems to apply here to many of these characters. It's a pretty insightful quote uh, from Arnold Rothstein on that show, who tells Nucky in season four, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. And <laughs> that seems to be yeah. this inability to just... And Charmaine says it in a much more blue collar way to Artie, I think a few seasons ago, be happy in thine own self. Yes. Artie just can't. That's it. He can't just look. Is he going to be a millionaire? Probably not. But he he has a good life. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He's got a great restaurant and he's a great chef. So he his his own sense of failure. And and by the way, this is comes as a result of his a large part as a result of his attachment to get Tony and guys like him, by the way, because he sees, he sees what Tony projects 
out to the world and it's like wow you know it's it's that glitz and glamour of the mob it's the first right. it's the first half hour of goodfellas that makes you think oh mm-hmm. this could be fun if only he knew the kind of problems that tony has maybe he wouldn't want that life yes yeah he's looking to cultivate that image tony is looking to cultivate the opposite image mm. and aj is aj's kind of disappointed with each and every image that's given to him it's not an accident, I think. And you guys are quite right to bring back that quote from last season, I believe, be happy in thine own self, pretty having so much trouble with that. Gloria couldn't do it um, to tragic results. Tony actually can't do it either. That's a big thing in this episode. Tony, Tony really does want to think of himself in this different way. He's just getting reminded, um, particularly through the storyline with Artie, that that's not who he is. That's not what the import of his life is. Of course, he's a toxic person because in spite of these nice gestures that he has, the essence of what he does is, as Melfi points out, usury theft. We find out a little piece of information that's going to come back up later. We'll discuss, but Tony has a $6,000 tab at the restaurant that he's racked up over the years. A curiously specific number I would like to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll come back to that 6K. Tony shows up at Globe Motors, talks to this uh, other fellow there, plays it off really well. He's kind of browsing and guy comes up, asks, tries to start selling cars. Tony says, well, I just talked to this other woman. I really ought to give her the business and digs a little bit, perhaps more than I would consider socially polite for someone you might have worked with a, a, in a sales capacity. So this guy, but this guy gives him some answers. Suicide, she left a note. I get the impression she wasn't very lucky with men. You can see the weight fall on his face when he says that. And he's crushed. Tony is crushed here. You can see it on his face. That salesperson's really well cast, by the way. This show does so well with like its characters that have like five to 10 lines. It's Mm -hmm. always like, it's always perfect. That's a weird thing to compliment a show for. But like, I totally believe that salesperson because it's kind of a weird scene to write and have played realistically. You're like, you got that much information from someone that worked with her for a little while. Yeah. But look at the guy he's talking. It's like a garrulous guy. He's a salesman, middle age, kind of a gossip. Tony found the right guy. Yeah. Good, good job to that actor who has that one episode. I like this. That is an incredible skill. You're not wrong there that these, these they're casting people for yeah. even just these, they call them in the business uh, co-stars or under fives. Yeah, he was uh, great. They, they, yeah, he, he was really excellent. Yeah, for an under five, what a home run hitter. He was mm-hmm. great. The thing with the the thing with the stove is so sad. Oh yeah. There wasn't even a note, it was just selling off this full stove. Um, you know, no Tony's not coming over anymore, no need to entertain, certainly no need for a decorative stove. Mm. Uh there was just no, there was nothing left. Yeah. Artie goes to Ralphie. Interesting. When you first talk to Jean-Philippe, you think he's going to Tony. I love this scene for several reasons, but go ahead. Yes, a little rest on humor. <laughs> this is a rare pleasure, or is it medium well? <laughs> oh, Chief Asabuco. <laughs> chef, sorry, Chef Asabuco. <laughs> hey, if you got any dirty chef fights, my friend here will suck out the stains. <laughs> <laughs> then he Pete. hits him in the neck. Yeah, yeah, he like jiggles his neck fat. <laughs> Vito looks so legitimately offended by that, too. <laughs> Ralphie's ball busting it does not endear himself to the targets of his jibes. It, he really doesn't. But he's the capo. 
And Artie, Artie with the hand gestures in this scene, by the way, kills me. Okay, in a nutshell, and he makes like a little circle with his hands. And then the yeah. the gesture, oh, I wish he like grabs his chest, his nipples. It's, 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 he's, he's, he's on art. John Vince Amelia is on fire in this episode. He's on fire. It's it's actually in many ways sharing it with Gandolfini, his episode. Yeah. Um, it's a great Ralphie scene. Ralphie rules in this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ralphie has he knows exactly he knows exactly what Artie's up to and this play acting Artie's doing. He's just kind of he's role playing along with him for a time. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, I really love that. I think Ralphie really makes the scene for me because he's he's kind of amused by this. He offers him a two point thing, and I just love how he's he's smiling. He's looking at him. He's like, ah, this is not. He said, yeah, I'm gonna pass. And I love the reason he gives. (laughs) Because if you don't pay, I'm not going to be able to hurt you. <laughs> he says it in a really cute way. Yeah. Way, way that only Ralphie Sofredo can say. And he's also completely right. He can't, if if this guy defaults, he can't actually hurt one of Tony's friends. It would create an automatic problem with Tony. Yeah. Yep. So, are, uh, Ralphie. Uh, not, only did, not only is it rare that Ralphie seems to actually let this guy walk out and it's like a actually an act of kindness but um in this instance even more rare for the sopranos this is ralphie in this instance anyway being a smarter gangster than tony mm. yes tony tony for sentimental reasons cannot will not hurt Artie either which is why he will end up giving himself a business headache in this episode yeah ralphie lets it walk out the door ralphie makes the correct decision here that uh tony failed to make with davy scatino not mm. long ago uh should not have lent that guy the money did yeah so ralph is really but you get the sense that ralph the tensions of last season are at least shelved in a way that it's not an immediate pressing concern ralphie brings in a shit ton of money the johnny sack thing blew over ralphie seems to have really settled into his role here as captain he's getting along with tony he's making a bunch of money and he's he's not an unintelligent guy he, he's he feels at home here. Like he's, he's in control of his orbit. He's doing well. So we'll come back to that, but fun seeing Ralph in this environment. Tony shows up visibly intoxicated, little disheveled shirts undone, untucked. He usually tries to look nicer when he visits Melfi. So, you know, right away, he's something's going on here. How's business? He asks everybody. All right. Honky Dory. Melfi's a little off put, but taking it in stride. How's Gloria Trillo? She's still uh, hanging around. And there it is. It was a tragedy. Tony blows up, smacks a tissue holder. So you knew you let me fucking sit there. He looms over her, says some really terrible shit to her. Uh, Why the fuck didn't you help her? Sometimes you can't. Melfi is also visibly gutted here. Her act, Lorraine Bracco's acting in this scene just kills me. Uh, and Tony just calls her an incompetent. You're a fucking incompetent. She says to him, I give my patients everything I've got. And when something like this happens, I'm devastated. And Tony, that causes Tony, at least in the moment, to retreat back to his seat. And these are two very hurt people by this. This is one of the examples of how a suicide, even in the orbit of a sociopathic gangster, I mean, these things ripple out in, yep. in unforeseen ways. But 
This is a very well acted scene, a very intense scene. This is the most physical Tony has gotten with Melfi since that scene in season one where he flipped the table and got right in her face and threatened to smash her face. So talk about this scene, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 intense. It's um, it's upsetting. And I'm always. Yeah, I listen, I keep sort of being fooled by this man. <laughs> I think that's that's kind of the appeal of the show. But in both those times, he's blown up like this season one. And now I thought he's going to hit her. Mm. I really always think that. Uh, and it's it's always right there. And you might say that to another fan of the show and they'd be like, oh, Tony would never actually harm Melfi. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that he wouldn't. I really don't. And mm. I don't think she knows either. Anyway, whether yeah. he hits or not, this fucking behavior is not okay. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, she's legitimately terrified, rightfully so. Uh, he's not in his right frame of mind anyway. And even if he were, he's still dangerous and, and explosive. And again, both times that he has exploded like this, one first one had to do with Livia. And then this one had to do with, again, revealing Melfi revealing information to Tony about Livia in season one. And Melfi revealing information about to Tony about Livia's surrogate, essentially. Right, essentially the same stand-in character. And yeah. that just, that hits a nerve that Tony is just never ready to address in a responsible, calm way. The, these scenes and this space is ostensibly the most important one on the show, particularly in an episode like this, where this woman that Tony knew intimately has suicided. It's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing. Of course, it's got... Uh, heaviness for both characters as you guys pointed out Tony's not engaged with any of this he's been drinking he comes in he's full of rage as Jordan pointed out this behavior is not okay not to mention they are not getting anywhere they're not sitting down and talking through these questions of how it really affects him instead as Jordan pointed out at the beginning even Tony's guilt seems to end up corrosive it only takes him a couple minutes to end up in this cruel jape where he asks if Gloria is still, quote, hanging around. I fucking hate that line. Mm. Um, hate, love, hate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then when he gets in her face, it, it, does, it didn't take long for his guilt to become so corrosive that it's even starting to eat up Melfi as well. Mm. So, yeah, don't ask if you're a toxic person. You are. So this is going pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Things like this. There's no one cause. She slipped through everyone's grasp. Why are you so quick to blame yourself? She's saying the right things that a therapist in this situation should say. But uh, this is not a typical situation here. And this is a powerful scene, but one that definitely leaves you unsettled and leaves the characters in it unsettled. This is not concluded. This is not resolved, and Tony refuses to face it forthrightly. Right. Uh, th there will be a later scene with Janice we'll talk about where there is um, this question of responsibility. Um, you know, who's who's responsible for someone's uh, suicide? And, you know, we leave this Tony and Melfi scene, even though she has kind of with her questioning almost assured him that maybe it wasn't his fault, mm -hmm we're kind of left with the impression that both these characters kind of feel like they're at least partially responsible. Um, and that is, I guess the nature of suicide is like everyone that knows the person feels they had a hand in their death. Tony goes to see Artie. He's still raw from his therapy scene. He's wearing the same clothes. So we get a sense that he's just going around New Jersey, drinking, <laughs> handling his business shows up. 
and you now need... seeking seeking redemption. Yes, this is a redemption trip. The Tony Soprano 2002 Redemption Tour. <laughs> right, which you will <laughs> will see the tour every year. Yes, the same tour every year. You need money. You go to Ralph. Already explains if my daughter had a tumor instead of needing braces, you'd be the first guy to go to. But this is a business thing. He reveals that he lied to Ralphie about his needing it for the restaurant. Tony, he says, all right, so what's 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 the business? What, what is it? Artie explains this Armagnac. He shows it to him. It's the new vodka. This is going to be the new <laughs> vodka, guys. <laughs> Just sounds so stupid. The new vodka. Are you fucking kidding? Yeah. Of course. Have yeah. you guys have you guys ever had Armagnac? I've never had that. I've never had it. I think it must be vile. I... I honestly have an aversion to it because of this episode. I... <laughs> the, the histamines. <laughs> I, I anytime I have an opportunity to try it, I'm like, I do exactly what Tony and Janice did later. I'm like, ah, I'll like something else better, and then get <laughs> right, <that>. yeah, <laughs> uh, which is very funny. But yeah, so Tony says, "All right, yeah, what the hell?" And then Artie doesn't want to take his money, and Tony gives this line for the first time: "What the fuck." am I a toxic person and he gives him and he says I'll only charge you a point and a half which is a hell of a lot better than Ralph Saffaretto would do it's this a little bit why uh, yeah I this is where I need to talk about six thousand dollars yeah okay here's this Artie will accuse Tony later in the scene of having like a subconscious predatory nature to him right that even when he's being actively nice and kind and generous that subconsciously there's calculations plans within plans right mm -hmm. i'm just gonna say this I'm gonna put this out there and i i think it's got to be intentional so tony's debt to the restaurant to vesuvio his tab okay is about six thousand dollars which you might say like i I don't really know if Tony's that aware of that it's about that number. I think he is. I think I think the number is about six grand. I think he knows it. Just put that out there. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Now this loan, which is ostensibly a bridge loan, it's a temporary holding of some money, right? Artie is arranging this loan of fifty thousand dollars, right? That uh, he tried to negotiate for ten, but ultimately he would make seven and a half on. Okay. He only needs to lend this money out for a week, and Tony has just charged him a point and a half. $1,500, which by the way, would reduce the amount that Artie would ultimately make after paying back the point and a half to six grand, which mm. at the end of this episode is what he's forced to forfeit over to Tony. I'm just saying that number had to be on purpose. Mm. Wow. That's... And I think Tony has those calculations buried underneath him. I really do. Yeah. Wow. That's really, I hadn't thought of that, but that makes so much sense. It's and, too coincidental. Six thousand yeah, dollars no. is a really specific number. It's not five. It's not ten. It's not even seven and a half. It's six on the nose. And with the point and a half calculation in there, he did it. Even drunk, he did it. Tony knows exactly what he's probably going to get out of this if it fails. I am now, and I mean this legitimately, Jordan. I am now picturing Michael Imperioli in a cozy room of his apartment, typing away at the script knowing he has to show it to David Chase in the morning with an actual calculator next to him, like doing the numbers. For I think the he did. Scheme. Yeah, he that's have. really cool. And that's I think really Tony's, cool. Tony's in, inner thoughts like made those calculations. Mm. Like in the moment, it was just like, oh, what's he going to make on this? Uh, I don't know. He's going to make seven and a half. I'll charge him a point and a half. Even if I fuck this up, I still eat free. Mm. He really did this. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes. He uh, steps out. 
already, if he wanted this loan, which I don't think he's going to in short order, but if he really wanted to do this business venture, he caught Tony on the right day. Tony has to do his quote unquote good deed for the day. And Tony steps out of the house and just starts slams the Armagnac right out of the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) And we get this dream sequence. Uh, What a nutty, but amazing. The, The visuals in this are just great. And Tony shows up for dinner at Gloria's. Buscemi really nailed this. Yes, yes. The style here, the the mood, the music, the drearying on in the background, the little bits of ceiling coming down into his drink. The fucking oh my god! This 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 in the middle of the sequence is just this one really wild shot of just an eyeball through a bottle or a tube or something. <laughs> just really nutty. And uh, the scarf, of course, I love that moment when she, when the meat, when the bell for the oven goes off and she says dinner's ready and she gets up and the scarf just trails up Tony's neck and and billows behind her. It's just a beautiful imagery. Then the unsettling sounds again. We know meat now has an incredible significance as relates to Tony's history, his family, his anxiety, his depression, and the sounds of the meat basting. Tony just has this disgusted horrified look on his face and we hear the the dripping of the juices she comes back to him what do you want to see and this is our pull quote for this episode this or this and uh, she has a hand in her in her crotch and a hand on her scarf and as the scarf starts to come down we're out of the dream okay so this dream is visually uh excellent it's the best work visually that I think Buscemi's done as a director on the show. Love all this. I love the acting in this. It's a different kind of Sopranos dream. I don't, typically Sopranos dreams are not nearly as upfront about Mm. the fact that they're a dream, but the second Gloria opens the door and is alive, at least in this weird hellscape, um, we know it's a dream. The setup with the meat, Chris, you're absolutely right. It's got that weird visceral quality. It's connected to sex. It's connected to death, which is also what so much of what Gloria represented. The reason I chose this as our pull quote, as you said, Chris, we got that weird fisheye lens moment with the what looks like the eye inside the bottle and the question of sight. Uh, Gloria would not, in her waking life, have called him Anthony. That's what she called him. She called him Tony. She says, Tony, nothing. Then it seems to get his attention. She calls him Anthony. That's what another Italian woman calls him. Mm. The one who tries to get him to see. And she asks him, which do you want to see? And she puts one hand on her crotch and the other hand on her throat, presumably where the ligature marks are, where he asphyxiated. The love drive and the death drive. Whichever aesthetic Tony chooses, it seems as though death will be on the menu. It's going to come out dark in spite of his good intentions, because of his good intentions. I'm not exactly sure, but that was the image that I took from the scene. That's why I chose that for our pull quote. Um, Mm. It's pretty grim. Yeah. Beautiful breakdown, Paul. Yeah, I, I can't do better than that, Paul. That was great. Cut to this next scene. Cousin Brian is here. Tony looks thr- thrilled about <laughs> oh, that. Oh, cousin Brian. <laughs> or Brian Camerata. Yeah. Tony is immediately running to his Prozac uh, after <laughs> having this dream. Just goes right to the medicine cabinet. I'll be right down. He comes down. 
into the living room. They're signing the living trust. Remember, this was what yeah. Tony's accountant get, uh, advised him to get to, to do rather than what Carmela originally wanted, but she's still pleased. It's Tony doing something for Carmela here, getting to feel like the good guy. Did you fucking, did, uh, to please tell me you guys caught this. Did you see the little look of horror on Tony's face when the oven goes off that little ding oh, yeah. from the oven with yep. Carmela's uh, lava cookies? I actually thought we were about to be launched into the reveal. That was a second dream sequence. Oh, such a beautiful touch. I love that. I love that moment so much. Just yeah. like Tony's kind of coming out of it. And then that little bell just brings that dread back to him. And who knows how much of the dream he actually even remembers, but that noise brings up a deja vu and a certain illness to him. It's so good. That moment just blew my, blew my mind. Yeah. Speaking of which, Tony's the dream might have been infused with this alcohol. And when he wakes up, he seems pretty groggy. He does he looks visibly uncomfortable, not looking great. He, I'm thinking like hungover if he was drinking maybe a lot the previous day, as we saw. That presumably means that when he called Brian the night before to say we gotta do this living trust, he was fucking wasted. Mm. And that was the that was the uh, environs in which he said, I want to do this nice thing for Carmela. The, I guess the redemption tour moves on. Mm -hmm. Excellent choice of wording here by Brian. Tony pulls Brian aside. These guys seem to be getting closer. Tony tells Brian uh, a compliment, talks about his suit, says, I'm going to give you a number, call him. He's going to take care of you. Gives him Patsy's number. And Brian yeah. says, thanks, Tony. You're a great guy. That's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And there's still, though, a very fascinating where we're left. Buscemi does a nice job with this. After Brian leaves, after telling him that, there's a shot of Tony alone in that foyer for a while. And uh, it, it lingers for quite a bit. And, and that sense of discomfort and, and dread is still with him, even after hearing you're a, you're a great guy. You're a great guy. Sorry, you're not even good guy. You're a great guy. And the shot lingers on Tony after he's very uncomfortable, very unsettled. I love the next scene. Very brief, but Artie is smoking a cigarette at the bar. Make sure you get that meat order in. Charmaine tells him you got it. And this clandestine exchange of the money. <laughs> Jean-Philippe's in the back. He goes through the kitchen, hands him this cash. So the deal is on. The money's changed hands. Let's see how this pays off. And uh, again, I have... so. <laughs> I have a playlist on Spotify that is every song that ever appeared on the Sopranos. And I love these scenes that really throw in a song that you wouldn't expect to hear on the show, but D'Angelo's, how does it feel? <laughs> it's blaring on the television loudly as AJ <laughs> and Devin are getting it on. Uh, it's weird because he started the show as a kid, but like seeing AJ in, in, in this kind of situation is a little, it shocked me and it's a little awkward, but like, you know, he's growing up. He has a girlfriend. He's a teenager. He's, yeah, 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 good for him. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, idea. yeah. So they're they're there. They're, they're getting going on the couch here, and Carmela comes in, busts up the party. I love how awkward this is. She stands up, asks H. Uh, Carmela offers to make them food. Now nah, we're good. AJ, you want to turn that down a little? He gets up, hiding his boner with his shirt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> any uh, teenage boy has uh, has done the t-shirt trick <laughs> at yes, some point. Uh, <laughs> any adult man. <laughs> <laughs> done that <laughs> and uh, she's Carmela and 
Devin have this exchange about her Yadro when AJ puts a can too close to it. Watch the Yadro. I don't even want to say how much it costs. Beat $3,000. Unbelievable. She can't resist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just to resist with Gloria, by the way. Yep. She couldn't resist saying Columbia. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That that information was not prompted, but Carmela, after a long pause, like Columbia, actually. Same thing here. It's a status symbol. It's a... You know, though that, that three thousand dollar yardro. I I sometimes you know you, you got to remember Carmela did not grow up with money. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So this yeah. is all still. It's she's never gonna get over it. Yep. You know. But again, with the specific. That, that's a good point. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Um. Well, I was gonna mention that later. Uh, Jordan mentioned Carmela didn't grow up with money. Yeah. Devin, I think, has always had money. Right. Uh, later, she says, "This doesn't matter." which I assume is what people with a lot of money who don't have to think about specific figures always say about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a big Scorsese line in, in the aviator, Mm. right? That's um, Howard at the, uh, the table with the, um, the Hepburn family, right? Uh, They say enough talk about money. Who cares about money? Uh, You know, but it's basically I'm paraphrasing, but like, and Leonardo's explosion in that scene is that's because you've always had it. That's why you don't care about money. That's why you never talk about it. You never mention it. Mm. Right. Yeah. I do want to point out, we have another synergy with amounts of money. Tony had $3,000 in his pocket to hand Artie and someone would be by with the rest. And then the Yadro costs $3,000 too. Oh yeah. Look at that. Interesting little, little thing there. Carmela leaves and they're trying to figure out Devin. I really wanted to be alone with you. They're trying to devise where they can go <laughs> yeah boy are they stupid <laughs> well my house is out my, my mom's boyfriend's using it as an office i'm not at my dad's till next week oh my sister's dorm great idea i'm sure she's gonna be thrilled about that yeah <laughs> you idiot and then also like there's a million places to go go anywhere how about the car you just hired do it in the car <laughs> uh so yeah the the we could take the 33 bus and she's her answer. That is, Oh, it's so smelly. I'll call a car. I'll call a car service. She's now here's the thing. She's not wrong, but also what a, what a, (laughs) what a eh, thing to say, you know, a lot of people rely on those buses, uh, but they do, they, 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 well, no post COVID they've actually, I've actually been impressed with how clean they keep the buses, but. Yeah. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. (laughs) 33 bus in 2002. What probably was, pretty gross (laughs) so yeah he calls up meadow hey we're coming into the city let's meet up she's at the south bronx law center meet me at brook ave and 161st street great they're on their way i want to talk about that location in a second but uh she comes up gives him a hug and they talk about she says i pictured something different when you mentioned your house and like the corleone compound with dogs and we had a dog, but it it died. <laughs> what, what, what happened to the dog? It got hit, got by, hit by a car. A car. Think, oh, jeez, yeah. yeah. And then he says, uh, "Our place in Tahoe looks like Michael's in two. And no, we don't really have a place in Tahoe. And uh, she's so excited. She's like a gangster dude's girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> so they go to the South Bronx Law Center, and I want to just say that, like talk about a culture shock. We're talking about different locales. I actually lived in the South Bronx for a great many years before moving out to Jersey. 
not, and I lived right off of 161st street. I know where this spot is Brook Ave and 161st. It's a pretty accurate representation of the neighborhood that they, that they described there. And it's worlds away from North Caldwell, but again, under an hour away. So it's just another interesting little thing. This part of the country is so crazy. If you think about just how many people there are packed into it, the New York, New Jersey, Long Islands, the whole thing is just so bizarre, how varied and diverse and big it all is. It's just- well, and as you mentioned earlier, with the different locales in New Jersey, you could be back to back with a community that is completely different than yours. Yeah. People who know New Jersey geography, Montclair and Bloomfield border Newark. Right. It, it's night and day. You could, I mean, it, that's a five minute difference between two different worlds. There's a great, I keep quoting other HBO dramas, but there's a, there's a line bubbles drops in season one of the wire when he goes to uh, detective McNulty's son's soccer game for a second. And then he gets taken back to the hood by McNulty. And he says, quote, there's a thin line between heaven and here. It's a great, great, great quote from a great character, another great show. But it, that that is just all over this episode, the difference between worlds here and how AJ thinks that. I mean, and and, and we're going to get another comp- example of that later when the world that Devin inhabits is completely different from that of North Caldwell. It's it's just so it's fascinating. I'm Meadow, politeness man's sister. <laughs> she wants to <laughs> and she wants to, you know, do have a normal like oh you're out in the city great let's go to alphabets my friend's reading and let's there's all this stuff going on let's have a let's have a night together she thinks she's getting a sibling visit and uh he wants to use her dorm and she's like no (laughs) how am i supposed to go in there how am i supposed to go in there after that's my bed well we'll just stay on the coverlet anthony no (laughs) so gross um also meadow rocks in this scene yeah she's kicking ass yes she looks like an adult she's Mm -hmm. doing something good yeah she's being assertive fucking go meadow she's doing great and her friend's sister is doing a reading from her novel Mm. yeah right um which i can't believe these 17 year olds would rather bone than go to um (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm 39. I would rather masturbate gloomily than go to that fucking event <laughs> in the alphabets. Um, yeah. So yeah, this scene is funny, as was the scene with Carmela. Um, all the different characters' vanities are on display. Isn't it interesting in this storyline that with these odd encounters AJ is having, Devin is also meeting some members of the family but only Meadow and Carmela. Tony stays pretty elusive, even though Tony is plainly the prize. Tony is the one who extends this image of gangsterism to AJ, but he himself remains elusive. Mm. I think it's deliberate. Mm. He looks back at Devin, gives a little head shake. Nah, it's not happening. Sorry. And uh, (laughs) the biggest cultural center of the world, and you came here for sex. But yeah, to your point, though, Jordan, whatever Meadow went through at the beginning of this season, it feels almost seeing her now in this environment, interning at the law center, dressed like an adult, functioning at a high level, has stuff has stuff going on, friends that are writing novels and doing yeah. things in the city. She she it, it feels almost like that might have been a a necessary growing pain. She feels powerful to me. Yeah. 
I agree. in this episode. Just I know it's a quick check-in, but I'm like, yeah, go Meadow. You're totally you're doing it. You're yep. fine. Yep. They have this interesting conversation in the car that relates a lot to what we were just talking about. Uh, I feel in, we feel I feel so insulated from reality. These people are on food stamps and and welfare. AJ talks about we have a housekeeper three days a week. He talks about a science teacher who they have five kids living there. They don't even have a dining room. It's like a little box. <laughs> I've lived in so many apartments that don't have dining rooms, by the way. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but yeah, so AJ, I get why he feels stupid later on the way he's talking here. Uh, well, this, yeah, the, the scene is really nicely constructed. We're, we're being tenderized for the big reveal later on of what Devin's world is like mm-hmm. um, and, and how narrow AJ's awareness is. Mm-hmm. Like AJ, I think in many ways, um, is kind of enjoying the associative gangsterism, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's enjoying some of the, the fringe benefits of his father's infamy, right? Oh, I've got a beautiful girlfriend. People think I'm a badass. But of course, it's all a facade. And yeah, in just a, a short moment from now, we're going to find out like, oh, I, I'm not the top of the food chain at all, at all, at all. And it's a huge gap. Artie flirting with the hostess Elodie again. I love the way he looks at her and just like pops that mint into his mouth, Artie. <laughs> he is perfection. What an episode for him. Yeah, yeah. He's so funny. So funny. In a weird way, he might be one of my favorite actors on the show just because he's so entertaining. Anytime Artie's on screen, I'm interested he almost <laughs> makes our season's best list at the end of every season <laughs> yeah however the point of this though is we get the first inkling that there's trouble in paradise jean philippe is not returning Artie's calls and we're gonna come back and... to that. <laughs> i'm sure he's just jet lagged right That's, oh yeah. yeah 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 well the time difference yeah exactly exactly little quick scene at the gym here and i should have mentioned this back in the brian scene but uh, one thing that's running through this episode is they're, they're going to this Billy Joel concert and uh, it's, it seems like it's going to be Brian and his wife, Tony, Carmela, and Chris and Adriana. However, we find out in this gym scene, Adriana, because of what's going on with her, let's not forget that she's beholden to the FBI at this point. It hasn't been coming around as much. There's all this stuff going on at the crazy horse. She has every possible excuse. Right. We only have two two touchdowns on that plot in this episode, right? We have the kind of the opening, the prologue where she's mm-hmm. watching TV stoned with Chris because they're depressed and we know why she's depressed. Mm-hmm. And then we have this and that's it for this episode, even though that's a major storyline. Yep. And this is also a thing that I noticed with Mike Imperioli episodes. Maybe he just finds it weird to write for his own, write for himself. But in, in a lot of his episodes... Christopher has a, a couple moments or scenes, but he they're not like Michael Imperioli never writes a Christopher heavy episode. The closest it comes to that is from where to eternity. And Chris is in a coma for most of it. So, yeah, yeah, totally true. Well, Chris and Adriana basically forget to show up for a storyline. They're mm. both kind of fucked up They're bo- There's nothing with Adriana actively working. There's no big check in with Chris. Then as the, you know, titular head of the family, there's just him high as a fucking kite staring into a mirror. So they've essentially checked out and it, you know, creates the opening for other uh, story threads to be explored here, which is essentially what happens when Adriana backs out of this dinner. Also, it's getting harder for Chris to hide what's going on with him. Aid says Chris can't seem to shake this flu. And Carmela says, yeah, I noticed his skin doesn't look very good. 
Yeah. Too many people are noticing what's going on. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, Karm lets out this very hollow. Oh, no. What am I going to do with those tickets? Oh, no. Uh, I guess I'll have to invite Furio and my hygienist. Oh, Whoops. no. Whoopsie. <laughs> then I have to say, with the exception of like a brief moment with the bone marrow, uh, this is a non-irritating scene with Janice in it. Congrats. This is, might be one of the first. <laughs> but she's she's so good. She's so good. Oh, yeah. You know, she's really, uh, Ida Totoro has really become one of my favorite actors in the series. Hmm. She's really incredible for such a, for a character that is so problematic. Uh, oh, yeah. Terrific. I, I love this. This one scene is great. It's really wonderful. It's a very natural scene. You really, they have the sibling chemistry. So perfect. This feels like a brother and sister having dinner. They have the same frame of reference. It's very conversational. Tony and Janice are having dinner. She's sucking out the bone marrow. I love marrow. Remember Ma with the <laughs> Ma with the marrow? It sounded like half off day at the liposuction clinic. It's always like, please, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they, that's what the Sopranos do. They suck everybody and everything dry. That's mm. it, especially Janice. Yep. Already comes by free dessert, of course. Why not? Desserts on the house. <laughs> Desserts on the house. He tries to offer them the Armagnac, and Janice <laughs> is so put off. Oh, oh, the antihistamine. Yeah, what is it? The the histamine. The histamines. God. Uh, that's that's it in a nutshell right there is that 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 has to that can't feel good for Artie. he's not he's given this money to this thing he's made an investment a value judge a value judgment on this business and he can't give it away i mean i'm sure tony wouldn't be paying for this armagnac right as as he will not be paying for the much more expensive drink that he ultimately tells him to leave the bottle on yeah so uh, yeah when he tells him put it on my tab (laughs) so you and bobby huh Janice immediately gets right on him because of their history. The last two times she's dated or gotten involved with somebody in Tony's crew, it was Richie and then Ralphie. So Janice perhaps rightfully assumes he's going to start laying into her, but he says, Jesus Christ, am I such an ogre? I was going to say good for you. I salute. I got to have an agenda. What the fuck am I? A toxic person it comes yeah, up. There again. it is again. <laughs> But yeah, this is again, this is part of his redemption tour. I'm going oh, to take my sister out to a nice dinner because I bet she doesn't get to go out a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm going to say something nice for a change about the new guy that she's with. And you know what? He's right. Bacala is a nice guy, but I'm sure there's a lot of unflattering things he could say about Bacala that he chooses not to say. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have to have an agenda. <laughs> um, unless this is another show I've been watching, everybody's got an agenda. Yeah, that's also true. So he brings up suicide. You know anyone? I loved. I'm sorry. This is very dark, but I I laughed at it. Do you know anyone who committed suicide? And she says, "Oh, I lived in Seattle, Tom." <laughs> right, which he takes at face value and does not laugh at. Yeah, it's like, oh, oh yes, of course. <laughs> uh, do you ever know anybody who did it? She describes a situation about an upstairs neighbor who killed himself. Uh, the last conversation was an argument. You never really know why. Yeah. And you you can see Tony's face sink a little more when she says the last conversation was an argument that rings very true to him and what happened with Gloria. But this is a, this is an, given the darkness in this episode and given how volatile Tony and Janice can be at times, 
this is a pretty nice scene. I, 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 I enjoyed swimming in this scene. I wanted it to last longer because it was almost in, in some ways a, an emotional reprieve, just seeing them getting along and having a nice meal together. Yeah. Yeah, I would say of all the good intentions tour things that Tony does in this episode, this is one that actually is nice. Mm-hmm. You guys are right. It, it it might then be that deliberate setup where this happens at Vesuvio, of course. And when Tony goes into the bathroom in the next beat, um, this is very well shot, this scene. Uh, already kind of invading Tony's space a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't think I don't think I don't think Artie's trying to be annoying. Of course, it, it's funny that that he is, but uh, he's nervous. Um, again, he's not cut out for this. He's not cut out to be a gangster. He's not cut out to go and make a collection. Uh, and this is another point where Tony fails. The maybe the real failure is forcing this loan upon Artie in the first place. But when then Artie needs this help, um, Tony passes it off he says you know you go make the collections you got to get over there tony wants these gestures again usually financial ones but he doesn't want the responsibility for it he just pop props Artie up and walks out yeah Artie, you got to go over there <laughs> you got to get your arms around this thing it, it's it's cool seeing tony's expertise on the subject i mean he knows all about this uh, sooner or later they start acting like they're doing you a favor by giving you anything and you got to get your arms around this and sounds like if Artie were a fellow mobster pretty sound advice you got to get on top of it but unfortunately this isn't Matt Bevilacqua this isn't Chris Moltisanti this is Artie Bucco chef extraordinaire and uh, this is only going to lead to calamity catastrophe and humiliation <laughs> Right. And again, I, I know we keep spoiling it for the end of the episode, but I, th- I think on some subconscious level, Tony knows that. Yeah. In other words, I don't think he actively sends Artie over there to fail, but he has a series of fail safes in his mind about, well, if that fails, I know what to do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I still I've seen this hundreds of times. Uh, I still laugh at Artie preparing in the mirror for this confrontation with Jean-Philippe. <laughs> oh, Jean-Philippe, qu'est-ce que c'est, man? Uh, message machine broken? <laughs> <laughs> his, 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 like, trying to be, a, he's just failing preposterously. And in, the, of course, in this fantasy, he's projecting into the mirror. Uh, Jean-Philippe breaks down crying in fear in front of him. Oh, you're going to cry now? <laughs> yeah. You fucking frog eating facha de guts. <laughs> I will fuck you up. <laughs> A lot of people looking at themselves in the mirror in this episode. Oh, yes. Sure. Very deliberately done. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if it goes off the way he's practicing, but let's let's come back to that shortly. Uh, next scene. How's Chris doing? Answer. Kentucky Fried Flow. That's how he's doing. This song is playing over this sequence of his friend just puking in the toilet and Chris staring at himself in the mirror, looking at his eye, pulling his skin back. It's yeah, uh, there's there's the future of the family. Let's get into that 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> 21st century looks grand, doesn't it? Uh yeah. But uh again, wild song choice here too by David Chase. I don't know where he finds this shit. Uh whoever heard of Kentucky Fried Flow before this episode. Anyway, <laughs> so there it is. So wait, wait, you're telling me Kentucky Fried Flow is on that fucking Spotify playlist you made for yourself? Oh, it is. 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's a playlist that has like <laughs> opera, Kentucky Fried Flow, no scrubs from season two. It's it's like it's it's got it's, it's, the, most, it's the most eclectic music compilation ever. Is this if this show had a big massive official soundtrack box set, it would be the most insane yeah. thing. When your Spotify wrapped comes up at the end of the year, does Spotify ask what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> As long as we're uh, talking about music, I do just want to do a quick shout out in that dream sequence that was so well done. This has actually come up a few times on The Sopranos. There's an old 50s band called the Aquatones that mm. was uh, like a club band that was headed up by a soprano singer, a young woman. Uh, and they have this love song called You that they've used a few times on The Sopranos, often in dream sequences, and they used it in that Many Saints of Newark movie, but let's not talk about that. And um, they used it in that... <laughs> they used it in that dream sequence, kind of slowed down, so mm. that it's very beautiful and haunting and weird. I just love not only the choice of music that's so um, perfect, but Chase choosing to ever so slightly... Um, slow the speed down as to make it, of course, that much more melodic and strange. Mm. Um, really well done. Agreed. Artie shows up at Jean-Philippe's place uh, and you know, it's a good start. He shows up, oh, Jean-Philippe, qu'est-ce que c'est, man? Message machine broken. And Jean-Philippe's like, what? And Artie has to <laughs> gets a little bit more practical, has to work it on the fly. And basically the money is... Uh, his his potential investors did not see the potential in Armagnac. They don't know how to market Armagnac. The hip approach, like with vodka, doesn't work. So Artie's like, well, that's not my problem, Jean-Philippe. I need the money. And Jean-Philippe's basically just like, hey, I don't know what to tell you. It's business. But hey, we will move on, right? We're, we're going to forge forward and forge ahead. Now, whether this Armagnac thing is a scam that he's pulling on Artie or whether or not or, or perhaps – this is something that's going to be a failed business venture for Jean-Philippe. We don't know for sure, but at this point, it doesn't matter because Artie didn't have this money to spare and he's in a really shitty spot. So Artie is very clearly uncomfortable in the role he's now found himself. He didn't want it to come to this. And he mutters the frog eat and Fachi de Gats line under his breath and then says, I want my money. And they start arguing. Are you stupid? That money's spent. And then they have a fight here. Artie is so uncomfortable with this. Uh, I I'm yelling the whole time at the screen as they're fighting. Like, Artie, throw a punch. He <laughs> he he's just trying to wrestle him down and doesn't it's clear that he's like he's in it, but he doesn't want to fully commit to it. And thus he gets his ass kicked. And he, yeah, there are a couple of moments where you think Artie might have a shot, but in the end, yeah. Jean Philippe just rips his earring out. Uh, the the earring that is of course the symbol of Artie's new version of himself, right? The midlife crisis divorcee badass <laughs> Artie, right? Is yeah. encapsulated in this ridiculous earring that is ripped out mm -hmm. and uh, just gets thrown out bleeding. I want my money. I see you again. I kill you. Door shut. A moment in that scene that really made me like sort of kind of like a gut punch is when, as you mentioned, Chris, he mutters that line the frog-eating thing under his breath, what he says desperately in Jean-Philippe's face is, my daughter needs braces? Yeah. I, I think 
That's not how you collect money. <laughs> the, what, what you <laughs> when you when you're collecting money, the again the vision that you have to put out there, the badassery is just that this is yours. You're entitled to it. You yeah. can't be like my dog. I need this money. Again, then they're doing you a favor. Yeah. I felt so much for Artie. That's the thing with John Ventimiglia. Like, that's who he really is. It's like, I'm a dad. I'm trying to do this. <laughs> you know, but it's just not working. It's I the know. same. It's the same stupid exposure that, of course, is reflected in still wearing your earring to this fight. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's not it's not just a pathetic line. It's Ventimiglia's pathetic delivery. I got a daughter who needs braces. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that's what you say to a guy you're shaking down. It's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he gets kicked out on his ass, and um, and then cut to Paul Dano giving AJ just some some premium lovemaking advice here. This is just great, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and he clearly, this character speaking from oodles of experience. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, they pull up to Devin's place, and at first they think it's they quote it as I think they describe it as quote Bo Pe- is it do they say Bo Peepish? Is that what a yes when they arrive at the gatehouse the gatehouse uh, yeah. that they think is her actual house? It's very Bo Peepish, yes, like a like a little country estate or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turns out to be the public friggin' safety office. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, they get just pull through to the to the uh, to the auto court. The auto, the auto court. Yeah, and this is one of those situations that it's like, yeah, Tony's house might be worth. I think he he mentions elsewhere in the series he paid a million, a little over a million dollars for it, and I'm sure the house has gained in value. So we're we're talking in the neighborhood of Tony's house being somewhere one to five million, folks. I got to tell you, you can find these spots. There's some spots in New Jersey that have these massive mansions like this. I've passed them. I've seen them. This house is. 50 million dollars i mean we're ballparking it this is a mansion this is this is this is bruce wayne money going back right. to batman and and what <laughs> a um what an experience for aj because in tony's world tony's the top of the food chain he lives in the mansion on the hill right uh tony's house is 10 times nicer than anybody that works for him right and now this is aj's first taste of like sort of the real world of wealth and power like oh yeah you think your dad is like the hot shot cool badass gangster boss man right wow you're the king of the hill well here's where the real hill is right it's a mm-hmm. mountain okay yeah. it's a hundred times bigger than your hill and you like one of the artifacts in this house are just something to collect and to fetishize mm. right you're not anything are you oof and that, that's how AJ feels. That's a great way to describe it, Jordan. Another financial synergy I want to point out. This one I did notice. Again, I can't, I can't believe it's an accident, but I'll I'll I'm curious what you guys think. When they pull into the auto court, there's a Hummer sitting there, a Hummer car. And uh, shamefully, I, the reason I know this is because when I was in high school around this time, 2002, 2003-ish. I actually wanted a Hummer. That was like a dream car for me. It's like, oh, someday I want I want a Hummer. Like that thing's badass. It's big. It's cool. That Hummer is about, give or take, in 2002 at this point, and get this number. You're going to know why this is important in a second. $50,000. Mm. 
Oh, that is funny. So yet again, the amount of money that Artie just lost that is going to devastate him, maybe cost him his life, is one vehicle in this in this massive auto court of this huge mansion. So, again, auto uh, auto court. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Plus the auto court. You hear that word and you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and just, you know, Paul Dano and... AJ looking at each other. I refuse to call him by his character's name, by the way. That's Paul. Da- that's Paul Francis. No, he's only Dana. he can only ever be Paul Dana. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, this is wealth, man. This is real wealth. Cut to Artie at absolute rock bottom again. I I hate to laugh at this, but just the music, the blood on his shirt, the sobbing. This is a man at absolute rock bottom. <laughs> he is listening to the horrible French album that this chick Elodie gave him. <laughs> And he is mixing pills with the Almanac. Tell me this is not bleakly hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you feel for him, but it's also like, good God, what a bed of misery this is. This is just pure, unadulterated misery. He also lives in like a, like the classic divorced man's little apartment, right? With like the fucking folding table with the tablecloth and a oh, yeah. shitty little couch. Bare bones. The, the bare minimum someone would need to sit in that room is there. <laughs> One lamp. Just, yeah, his, uh, this is rough. Artie's in rough shape here. Just crying. He calls Tony. Tony's in the midst of a uh, tryst. We've never met this blonde he's with before and just par for the course tony with another woman no 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 surprise there takes this call from artie he just he's 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 done he's like he he he's attempted suicide at this point i'm sorry i let you down uh tony's like what did you do artie what did you do take care of charmaine for me and drifts off Artie, don't go to sleep don't go to sleep and then tony you know is right at the point where this is extra alarming to him. This would already be alarming to him, but just coming fresh off the Gloria thing, he has to do something here. Tony starts getting dressed. I like this very well acted moment. All right, what the fuck am I doing? Where you just have to rush up and you're just like, what's the plan here? And he realizes the best thing to do actually in this situation is call 911. They're going to be able to help him more than he will. It was the right move. Yeah. It was. So he calls 911 and we cut back to the house. Picasso paintings in the living room or one of many probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. my dad collects his later stuff. Mm-hmm. How nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul Dano is off in the distance marveling at every little thing he finds and how much it all costs. And AJ is embarrassed. He feels like, yeah, another trophy in this massive house. He feels you should have told me and she says it doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything well if it doesn't mean anything why didn't you say something right uh i feel for aj here i i see why he's embarrassed but at the same time you know they're i mean they're both they're both quote unquote rich right i mean both of these pe- people have more money than than i have right now for that's for sure <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? Uh, only one of them has the kind of wealth that you would have to prepare someone for. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, I'm sure that Devin Pillsbury is uh, a, a nice, polite girl, probably. I don't actually, you know what? I don't know that. I, I What I'm saying is, I think she's been with boys before, and I think you probably need to tell someone like, hey, listen, you're going to come to my dad's house, and it's, it's, it's big. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just careful. My dad's got a lot of money. Something just cat mention it casually, even something. So much of this show is about the complications of Tony's life. And the realization that AJ came to in Meadowlands was about some of that mystery opening up to him, him coming to see these parts of Tony, which have their complications. It also has its mystique. It has its attractive and intriguing qualities, which the kids are digging into in a lot of this episode. And by this point, a lot of the complications we know are still there. But instead, one of the reasons this is a bummer for AJ to this episode is that a lot of the seek pulled away. The cobwebs are removed. He's not special. His dad's not special. Of course, he's embarrassed. Of course, he's troubled by it. We got back to Artie. He's in a hospital room. Tony comes in. He's very upset. Suppose I come to your house and I find you dead. How am I supposed to feel? Artie's devastated. Take the restaurant, Artie. Uh, I don't want your fucking restaurant. <laughs> Tony's not going to bust Artie out here. He's not going to apply the usual pressure. We'll wipe my tab at the restaurant. And that's going to come back in a second here. But then Artie says, but Tony, $50,000. It's going to take me the rest of my life. And Tony says, well, technically, Artie, it's 51.5 and big wise. And you already <laughs> missed it. You already missed the payment. <laughs> but, uh, We'll wipe the tab at the restaurant, and then about the $50,000, Tony takes on, I'll assume the guy's dead, meaning that he now owes me that fifty grand, not you, and I'll handle it my way, is, is what that means. Should be grateful here, and he is. He thanks Tony. He, he, he cries, but then, as Paul says, he has already can't leave well enough alone, ever. <laughs> he uh, The cobwebs are now removed, the little gesture he does there. You saw this whole thing. You can you saw 20 moves down the road like a hawk. Your mind went through all these permutations and you thought, worst case scenario, I eat for free. And Tony is just so offended by this. Uh, the look on his face is, I've never seen Tony look like that. Mm. He doesn't want to hear it. And he doesn't think of himself that way or doesn't want to think of himself that way. But when Artie was saying it, I'll be damned. It's it that's like it's right on the money. This is bang on accurate. It is. Like a hawk both, seat, both, like yeah. Both both feelings are correct, right? Tony should be offended in this moment. He's kind of just saved his friend's life. Yeah. Though in the in the macro, he's caused this situation. Right? <laughs> um he's just saved his friend's life. He's there, he's showing compassion or what he thinks is compassion. It's actually very selfish if you really look into it. Mm. Um but um he's he's being there for him. He's saying I'll wipe away your debt, whatever. Just, you know, get rid of my tab at the restaurant, no big deal. And Artie's response is very upsetting and it's identifies him as as a predator and a calculating predator and someone who is not capable of not being predatory and Artie's also totally right. Tony's right to be offended and Artie's accusation is also correct. Hmm. And it's true. We know yeah. this is true as people who watch this show. Yeah. Artie says he envies Tony for it, this instinct. It's like an instinct. And yeah, I, I think this is Artie being brutally honest, he's not wrong. Uh, this is an instinct for Tony. And uh, sometimes Tony leans into it and sometimes he, he doesn't. But this is one of the situations where Tony is being told a hard truth here and doesn't react well to it. 
he turns it back on Artie. You fucking suicide. You're disgraceful. And Artie instantly crying again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he concocts this story. You got mugged. Tony, they pumped my stomach. They saw the arm and yak. And Tony just grabs him by the face and says, you got fucking mugged. Do you understand me? Enough. You don't care what people think. Well, I do. Enough people hate me. He doesn't want it getting out there with all of this, the way he's feeling about how he looks. It's 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 two things, but yeah. Also very funny. I, you know, it, this can't get back to me. You can't trace this back to me. I don't. I I was never a part of this. And he steals his wallet and his watch. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't so loan he, you shit. He did get mugged, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tony actually mugged them. That's funny. <laughs> he did. <laughs> um, I think what's funny about this is that. As Jordan pointed out, Tony is legitimately offended. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, you know, it does seem like he has a right to be, but is it because it's not so much that Artie's not right, but that it's not like Tony, it's not top of mind. Tony wasn't thinking of the free food in this episode. He was thinking of his own image. He was thinking of the goodwill. Um, Artie points it out, it's the worst case scenario. But it's a hard truth, as you said, Chris. Similarly, I think Melfi is also going to try to get Tony to see this aspect of his life mm. in the following scene. And Tony isn't, he's not ready, he's not willing to go there, um, either in this scene or the next. And uh, as funny as this scene also is in this bleak way, Tony finally walks out at the end. It, it's not warm, it's not even... It's not even friendly anymore. Mm. I didn't loan you shit and walks out. And Artie's alone. Uh, they cut to a scene where everybody's having dinner with their spouses. Artie has Artie's uh, uh, attempted suicide and he's separated from his wife. It, it it made me feel pretty bleak. Yeah. And, dude, you want to feel even worse? Here's uh, the cycle continues with Tony's predatory instinct Here's something I thought of watching this is that Tony, and again, in his attempt to look good and say, you can look at it on the surface and say, Tony doesn't want Artie going around saying that any of this happened because it'll make him look like a piece of shit because people like Artie. He's a pillar of the community. It would make Tony look predatory and awful. But at the same time, you also have to look at it like a gangster looks at it, which is on that under the surface level, he can't have... Artie going around saying that Tony has a soft spot, that Tony lent me money and didn't pursue me to the ends of the earth for it, because then it's open season on Tony bar lending out money. Yes. Great point. Great point, awesome. Chris. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Reputationally, he can't have this getting out that he's an easy mark or has a soft spot. So it's, again, simultaneous image management, but also that that keeping who he is in mind underneath it all at the same time. Moving on to this uh, dinner, Billy Joel. I like that they chose the Billy Joel song scenes from an Italian restaurant to underscore the start of this scene. They were, I can't tell if the dinner is before or after the show, but either way, they're all get, getting dinner around the Billy Joel concert. Tony talks about this dream he had, very different dream from the one he had earlier about a woman in a dress and a dinner being served. But uh, this one's very different. Carmela, he talks about the story about his 
grandfather with the blue dress and you got a good good wife, you're a millionaire. Then the next night he's being served steak pizzaiole by Carmela in a blue dress, pouring his soda. And the next day he bought the ring. It's a sweet story. Furio is <laughs> hanging out with the hygienist. She's going to clean my teeth for me. I like that. <laughs> That's a very funny, weird line. And uh, really nicely played by um, Carmela, by Edie Falco in this scene, who you see both the delight and the regret that she has set him up with this woman who, as it turns out, is a beautiful woman, by the mm-hmm. way, beautiful, beautiful Italian girl that I think he would think he was lucky to be with. Uh, and she is, yeah, trying to play matchmaker in this situation to maybe get rid of these feelings, but oh, the jealousy. Oh, <laughs> yes. Know. Oh, yes. It's visible. Brian makes a toast once again to the great guy. Great, great tickets, great meal, great guy. While Artie is being stomach pumped somewhere in Nutley or whatever. And, <laughs> and Carmela gets that last look at Tony. It's very brief, but we see the ambivalence. Mm. Yep. Tony and therapy. This is in essence, the last button of this story. And then we're going to get an, a last scene with AJ here, but we're winding down the last beats, the episode, Tony therapy, talking about Artie analyzing. Is this, you know, is this an instinct? It says it's second nature. Melfi says, from what I understand, you make a lot of your living through usury. Why the pangs of conscience this time? Tony brings it back around. Where's Gloria? Now this, they can both go fuck themselves. (laughs) I made a donation to the suicide hotline in her name. And that's it. He's not going to dwell in this anymore. It's, it's become too distracting, too disruptive uh, to who he is and what he's trying to do. So he once again tries to buy himself into good favor. It's the perfect mix of, I think, his usual, that he made a donation in Gloria's name. It's the perfect mix of his usual sentiment, his sentimentality, and his attempt to essentially, again, buy goodwill. And this might also be evidence that Jordan's point earlier was so dead on that he's worked out these numbers because even in this spiritual sense, as he says, they can both go fuck themselves. I made this donation and that's it. And I think to his perspective that, at least for the moment, squares his accounts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Done. This is a, a common behavior for him. It's actually, it's very Catholic. Uh, it's very Michael Corleone mm. Catholic, right? Which is just like, I've done this great wrong. I try to make amends emotionally. I can't really work through it emotionally. So you get money from me or you get a gift. Right. I buy you a giant sapphire ring or I try to pay you off at your new job at Fountains of Wayne or like I fucked Mm. up in some way. I can't really make it up to you. Uh, Fuck it. Here's some money. And I move on because I I can't move on emotionally. So I have to do it by basically paying for an indulgence. What would be better for him is to address this seriously in therapy. Number one and number two. Not pay off anybody, but maybe just stop putting people in situations where they want to commit suicide because their life has been ripped out from them. That's a thought, but <laughs> it's a good, you know, it's a good thought, Chris. It's a good thought. <laughs> and then we get this last little button on the scene. Uh, well, two little last little buttons, this first one. And again, we've talked before about how well they established Furio. All you need to see is knock on the door. John Philippe opens yeah. Furio standing there. 
I and, uh, I assume the man is dead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really. What else? What else do we need to know? <laughs> or if he isn't dead, he certainly wishes he was by the end of that meeting. You're right, Chris. I mean, it's just great storytelling. Yeah. That you you need five seconds without even any dialogue to tell people yep. what's happened. So you never need to see Furio be violent again. You just no, do this. That one scene did it so well. Just establish him as the hammer forever. Yep. And there he is. And, and that's it. You just get so much out of that. It was so good. Cause, and that's the way you use it. Cause one could argue they'd be incorrect. One could argue that the first, his first entrance into the New Jersey mob scene is gratuitous, but this is why it isn't gratuitous because you spared the audience from multiple scenes of, of violent destruction for, for multiple seasons because you established Furio so well in that one moment. It's great. But this guy is certainly uh, Jean, Jean-Philippe is not oh, uh, going to like what awaits him on the other side of that door. And then the very last scene we get here is this AJ storyline. AJ hanging out with his friends. I don't think Devin's there. I think this is just the boys. Two of the guys are wrestling, horsing around. And AJ still feels kind of blindsided and gutted by all of this. And uh, the episode leaves on a little bit of a somber note here where one of his friends asks, AJ, how come your dad doesn't have that Don Corleone money? And his response is, I don't know. Another episode very much centered around money. It's been a pervading theme this season since episode one, when we left out on the $20 bill and the anxiety of money and the post 9-11 environment. But this, uh, this theme continues here. Another episode that ends on a note of financial concern and confusion and then we cut out to the credits any uh thoughts on these last couple beats and final overarching thoughts on everybody hurts well you know i think uh the show does a nice job this episode with aj in particular who uh just as he's coming into his own he's losing ground Mm. it's kind of like he has finally an image of himself or how he could operate and then also he's left to think about the flaw that is in that right that it is something that is uh, incomplete or makes him feel unfulfilled because it's not his directly it's power that he's loaned loaned by who his father is and what his father is and who his father is isn't something that is good and he's suddenly realizing nor is it something that's really rich and powerful either uh and he's kind of i love this last scene because he's kind of like what is my life? Am I even real? It's, you know, it's Chris looking in the mirror while he's high. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's, it's already looking in the mirror, trying to pump himself up to be, uh, you know, the, the big gangster, right? It's, it's AJ trying to be like, well, are my friends only my friends because of who my dad is? Does this beautiful girl only like me because of who my dad is? Am I only who I am because of who my dad is? And then the unasked question is, you know, who is my dad and then who am I? What does that mm. make me? It's it's the locus for so much good AJ storytelling going forward. And then just uh, the overarching thought on the episode is, and this is an oft-observed thing. This is not obviously an original thought. Uh, the title of this episode, not our title, the actual title is Everybody Hurts, which will make us think of the REM song, Everybody mm. Hurts Sometimes, yeah. right? But also uh, as the verb, right? everybody hurts somebody right um tony hurt gloria and he can't make it up to her maybe he can make it up to these other people but all he does is hurt them Mm. uh 
His toxicity is thus that he cannot help but be toxic. And when Artie asserts that, uh, he is so hurt and offended by that, but it's so mm-hmm. true. Um, he can never really get away from it. Chris, I think you're right. I think your observations are the best. If he really honestly worked through that in therapy, maybe he could save himself. But instead, he's just going to try to do it through money. Well said. Uh, yes, this episode chiefly to me is about those questions of identity. Uh, earlier when, again, they were talking about money, Devin said it didn't matter. And she says, I like you to AJ. AJ is still troubled, I think, because the question roaming through his mind is, well, who is that? As Jordan uh, posed the same question. And uh, yes, that's what a lot of the characters are seeking out. Um, In this episode about the gangster image, the gangster image in many ways remains elusive. Uh, Polly is not in this episode. Silvio is not in this episode. We're getting a different set of images and Tony trying to put that out there. Again, it doesn't quite work out. The toxicity, as Jordan pointed out, can't help but come through. I also think this episode is largely about relationships because we hurt the people that we love. And um, the fallout after Glory has killed herself, the fallout after Artie and Charmaine have separated, and now the fallout of AJ realizing this deal that he's in with this young woman, Devin, and where he really stands. It, uh, it's a lot of tough questions, and it's a lot of lonely questions that the characters are asking. It does make the episode fairly bleak in a lot of ways, but very funny at times, uh, interestingly dramatic in others, extraordinarily well done. Uh, kudos to Imperioli for the writing and Buscemi mm-hmm. for the directing, and uh, all the actors in particular. I have to give a shout out to Gandolfini and um, Ventimiglia here. Yeah. Yeah, really electric scenes between them. I agree with everything you guys said. And, you know, what makes me sad for AJ, too, is I keep thinking about I kept coming back to the question, why doesn't Devin tell him about the money earlier before surprising him? And I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. And the only answer I can reasonably come up with, given what we know about the character, I mean, we don't know much about her. And, you know, it's not not a spoiler to suggest that she's not going to be a top tier main character, even if she stays around for a little bit. So what do we really know about this woman? Not much. So why would she do this? Well, I I would think that if I had that much money, I wouldn't tell a potential partner, girlfriend, spouse, until I felt like we had a baseline connection that went beyond the money. I think the fear of telling people you have a lot of money is that they end up liking you just for that, or they end up wanting to exploit you or marry you just to get a piece of it and then ditch, ditch and run, leave town. I think rich people have that legitimate concern when they catch feelings for somebody. So maybe she doesn't want to do that. However, and and then I think about the, the contrast there with AJ, who has found this identity of being Tony Soprano's son and how if I were in AJ's shoes, I might not drop that everywhere. But because this is so central to what's going on with AJ and maybe one of the only ways he's able to get friends, which is a sad thought. That's something he just lets out. Yeah, yeah, I'm Tony Soprano's son. And even maybe leans into a little bit to a certain extent. So I just found it kind of set the idea that maybe AJ is reflecting on the fact that not only does she have more money than him and he doesn't understand who Tony, who his father is or his place in this world or what this all means for him, but it's also that like 
this is what I have to work with here. And she, you know, this other person that I have feelings for didn't want her identity tied up in who her father was. And yet here I am with this. It's, it's a, so it's another potential layer of that, that made me feel badly, but overall sense great episode. Uh, I love, I don't know, these AJ episodes, this, this latest watch through, meaning the watch through we're doing for our podcast These AJ episodes really hit hard. Again, we've, many of us have said it here, but shout out to John Ventimiglia for this. This is a really standout special episode for him. I love when Sopranos gives these hours to some of the more underutilized actors in the show and they always step up. It's really great to watch. And everybody hurts, another one in the bag. We are moving on, season four. We have another favorite of mine coming up next, watching too much television. I'm excited to get into it with you boys. And uh, in the meantime, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you next time watching too much television.